Interesting stuff here. Listen to this. South Sea Island cruise. Four young women wanted for photo assignment must be attractive and broad-minded. You don't like him, do you? I hadn't really thought about it. John, imagine what he's been through. Sorry, Ray, whichever way I turn it, I just can't swallow it. Any reason? Not really, just 25 years at sea. Welcome to the Mad Max Minute. I'm Rick. I'm Julia. And we watched, for this episode, 1989's Deadcom, directed by Philip Noyce, <laughs> written by Terry Hayes and Charles Williams, starring Nicole Kidman, Sam Neill, and Billy Zane. We have not watched the movie yet, but we just sat down and watched the trailer. I turned to Julia and said, we need to talk about this. Yeah, I'm actually really curious what you're excited about. I was not terribly interested by the trailer. No, the content of the movie, I'm a little wary of. Mm -hmm. On IMDb, this is called a horror thriller. Billy Zane in the trailer seems to be off his rocker as if taking his bad guy run that he would do in a few years on Titanic and just really milking the crazy guy in the middle of nowhere for all that it's worth. But yeah. what really stood out to me at the end of the trailer is from the people who brought you Road Warrior. And I looked at it, and yeah, this is a Kennedy Miller Mitchell production. Yeah, did we know that when we chose this movie? I might have, but I didn't memorize it enough for it to stick in my memory before bringing it up now. Yeah, I didn't either. I was surprised by that statement in the trailer as well. And as you go through the little credit screen at the end of the trailer, yeah, you see all of those names that we've come to recognize watching the other Mad Max movies. Terry Hayes, Doug Mitchell, and George Miller, they're all producers. And as I mentioned before, Terry Hayes actually wrote the screenplay. Dean Semler mm -hmm. is photography. George Miller was the second unit director. Okay. So he did step in, help out. This gives me pause. Because we just spent the better part of two years watching Waterworld when there was a water-themed <laughs> Kennedy Miller Mitchell production that was released only a handful of years after Beyond Thunderdome. Based on the trailer for this movie, it does not seem like the kind of movie that would benefit from a minute-by-minute -minute interrogation. I feel like we watched the whole movie. In this trailer. I'm not quite sure what else the movie has to offer yeah. that isn't shown in the trailer. I am not thrilled by this trailer. The concept seems pretty cut and dry. Yeah. There's got to be some sort of twist. There's got to be some extra plot that they didn't show us. Something to make it more interesting than the trailer provides. I imagine that a good part of Act 1 is going to be, hey, let's meet Nicole Kidman and Sam Neill. And then Billy Zane is going to show up in Act 2, and he's going to be real crazy, and there's going to be some sort of mystery that they got to figure out. And a lot of this trailer is Sam Neill on Billy Zane's boat 
while Nicole Kidman is stuck on her boat with Billy Zane. The trailer makes it pretty clear that Sam Neill doesn't make it off that boat, the death boat, and that Nicole Kidman gets killed by Billy Zane on her boat. Yeah. There's not a lot of mystery here. My prediction is that Sam Neill is going to be super intrigued by the mystery of why Billy Zane is alone and that he's going to actually successfully find the answer to the mystery and make it back to the boat in order to save Nicole Kidman at the last minute. I think Nicole Kidman is going to do most of the work of defeating Billy Zane, and then Sam Neill is going to come in in the 11th hour and deliver the coup de grace. It does seem like Nicole Kidman's character has to withstand Billy Zane for quite some time. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of that in the trailer. On the positive side, what I am hoping and expecting from this movie is fantastic acting performances. Oh, yeah. We have three world-class actors. So I want to feel like I am watching world-class actors act. Even if I'm not crazy about the story, even if I'm not crazy about the genre, I want to be wowed by their acting. I popped over to Billy Zane's IMDb page. His first role in a feature film was playing a guy named Match in Back to the Future. His second movie role was playing Steve in Critters, and then it's a bunch of TV movies, TV episodes. This is his third movie. Okay. So he's still really early in his career. So maybe temper the expectations a little bit on Billy Zane. Yeah. He's, he's learning to do still. He's still four years away from Tombstone. He's still several more years away from Titanic. Nicole Kidman, on the other hand, we have seen her young, mm -hmm. and she did a good job in, what was that Christmas movie, Christmas in the Outback? Yeah, she was in Bush Christmas. But she was good in that movie, and she was a kid. Yeah. So we know that she's already had that learning and practicing time. Mm -hmm. If we were going through Nicole Kidman's filmography, we probably also would have watched BMX Bandits at one point. <laughs> this is not anywhere close to being her first movie. I could pretty much say the same thing for Sam Neill. Just going by the trailers, pairing Sam Neill and Nicole Kidman together seems like an odd pairing to me. Yeah, he seems so much older than they her. They are 20 years apart. 20 years. I know that is very like Hollywood tropey, mm -hmm. but I guess I expected more. He was born... In 47, she was born in 67. Okay. I couldn't help but notice that on the IMDb page, the characters' names are John and Ray Ingram. Yes, I noticed that. They are, they are Ingrams. Which I have been called an Ingram many times because people look at the H in my last name and they think it's an R. We were talking about it at work today, that people hear what they want to hear. Mm-hmm. Ingram is a more common last name than Ingham, so they hear what they want to hear. I know I've mentioned this before. Sam Neill's mother was born in Ingham, so take of that what you will. When I got married, well, when we got married, and I changed my last name, I did a search for my new name. Because as my maiden name, I was the only person named that name in the whole entire world. My previous last name was much less common. So I googled my new name, and there's a ton of us. And a lot of them are in Australia. Mm -hmm. Ingham is a big name in Australia, which matches because I know it's a very British name. 
And knowing your family, some of those Inghams ended up in Australia. Oh, yeah. I wouldn't put that past them. Yeah. Not at all. (laughs) So what's going to happen? Listeners, in classic hiatus style, I am going to play the audio from the trailer for you. And when we come back, we will have watched the movie and we will be able to better commentate on this piece of media. Alone on a sea of endless calm, it was easy to imagine they were the only two people on Earth. But into their perfect world, there came a stranger. Stand off! Tried to take her across the Pacific. On your own? No. There were six of us. Yeah, this died ten days ago. I'm going on board her. He's fast asleep. He won't even know. God, you're pretty. What about those people, huh? There wasn't any food poisoning, was there? No way! You think I'm making this up? No, I don't. Dead Calm, a voyage into fear. (gasps) From the makers of The Road Warrior and Mad Max. And we're back. Julia, what are your initial reactions after finishing the movie? That the movie was more interesting than the trailer let on. (laughs) Thank goodness. Yeah. I think I liked it. It's not necessarily my genre, the horror thriller. Although, this wasn't very horror-y thrillery. It was tense. It was definitely more thriller than horror. Yeah. Billy Zane definitely could fill the shoes of a slasher, but this is not the kind of movie with a high body count because any sort of murder rampaging happened before the story began. That's true. There was actually no murder in the actual movie. Murders happened before the movie. Yeah, that was a tense 90 minutes. Well, 90 and some change, but you know what I mean. Yeah. I would first and foremost agree that this would not have been a good movie-by-minute movie. There were a lot of tension-building scenes where things were very quiet the entire opener for a long time is devoid of dialogue the first dialogue might be something about the police told me my son died on impact that's the first line of the movie yeah i did like that there was more to the ingram story than just a happy couple taking a vacation on a sailboat right that's not what was going on they were recovering from a car accident, their maybe two-year-old son died yeah. in the car accident. Ray was seriously injured. I was like, is this a prologue or an epilogue? Because is she going to survive? She didn't look like she was going to survive, but she did. So when she was released from the hospital, they take this trip to get away and to recover. Mm-hmm. It's been a long time since I've seen a movie that depicts a child death. Oh, yeah. Quite that like was- this. That was 
weird. So this movie, the setup, not the end result, but the setup reminds me of a Lars von Trier movie that I did not enjoy called Antichrist. And it stars Willem Dafoe and another actress whose name I can't quite remember. Oh, you've told me it's the cabin movie. It is the cabin movie. And the way the story begins is the husband and wife, they are in another room and their toddler basically climbs out an open window and falls to the street below. And so as you're watching the movie, you get to see this little toddler body hit the sidewalk. And thankfully, you don't watch a toddler body in this movie hit any sort of street, but you do see it fly through a windshield. Mm Mm-hmm. 1989 seatbelt technology in toddler driving seats is not what it is today. Oh my goodness. I was flabbergasted. This baby wanted something off the floor, so he just clipped and popped himself right out of his seat. Yep. Without even struggling to get out. And of course, she's driving in the middle of the night in a rainstorm on a crowded highway, and she's got to deal with a toddler in the back seat, and cars are coming, like, Yeah, I'm not surprised she got in a car accident. Yeah, she just loses control. Mm -hmm. You're right. She gets seriously messed up in the crash. Probably one of the more traumatic lines of dialogue was how John Ingram, officer and gentleman that he is, coming home from deployment, is told by the doctor that despite being told that his son died on impact, his son was still technically alive for about 20 minutes. Yeah, you know... There are times for doctors to lie. Yeah. And I think this was one of them. I think in this instance, let the guy who just lost his child believe that the child died on impact and didn't feel any pain. Don't try and get literal with it where, you know, the child was unconscious, alive, but unconscious. Like, don't try and nitpick it. Just give it a nice, easy explanation where a man can believe that his child did not suffer in death. Yeah. There was an offhand comment that made me think that maybe she was pregnant and lost the baby in the crash. I'd have to look at an actual script yeah. to see what the line was, but I swear somebody said to John, did they tell you about the baby? See, I just assumed that was the toddler. Because he's just getting back from being on the ship for who knows how long. Yeah, maybe they were. I just kind of got the impression that maybe she was pregnant. At the time. But we have no indication how long he was away. Yeah. They kind of did make a big deal about them being on leave for Christmas, but they could have been gone for six months, which in the U.S. is one type of standard deployment. Okay. So it's totally possible that she was. It's also possible that they were talking about the two-year-old and she wasn't. But after all of that unpleasantness, we actually do go to the boat. We don't start the movie on the boat, which you were surprised by. Based on the trailer, I was expecting that the entire movie was going to take place on this boat. We actually didn't get as much time with John and Ray alone as I thought we would. No, I was all disappointed in they that. They ran into Huey, played by Billy Zane, awfully quick. They did. We were with them pre-Huey pretty much long enough to be introduced to the sedatives yeah that she wanted to take more of and he was like no you can have one john's a little bossy well 
dare I say, he's a little commanding. Right. Because he is a commander of some kind. Officer in the Australian Navy. He's also, as we said in the opener, 20 years older than his wife. I don't think they're necessarily playing the roles of someone with that big of a age difference. But there is clearly an age difference between them in the movie. He is an older man. She is a younger woman. But not 20 years difference. At one point in the movie, I was curious about Nicole Kidman and Billy Zane. Billy Zane is only one year older than her. So while in the movie, Huey feels like this very childish character and Ray feels like a grown up woman, Mm -hmm. they're the same age. We see Ray coping with the loss of her child in one major scene where she wakes up from a nightmare and John swoops in to try and calm her down. She doesn't really get a lot of opportunity over the rest of the movie to focus on getting over her emotional trauma at losing her child because as soon as Huey shows up, he derails everything. He immediately brings this undercurrent of tension that from time to time bubbles up, like consistently bubbles up. He's not overtly aggressive or sinister. It's all just under the surface. And on the surface, he's handsome, maybe a little silly. Maybe he's got a little bit of an attitude. Like when they first meet him, he seemed like a petulant teenager. When they first met him and he was rowing that dinghy and he crashes into their boat. Crashes into the side of the boat, leaps onto the boat, and then immediately runs down below deck. My first reaction was uh, rude. Yeah, and scary. Yeah. It's the same as someone's knocking on your front door aggressively. You open the door and they just walk right in. Like immediately your guard is up. Mm -hmm. I don't know who this person is. And honestly, it doesn't really matter because of the way they entered your home. It's the same thing on the boat is he's very aggressive. But John is very cool and collected. And so is Ray. Neither one of them are like prone to hysterics or anything. They're both mature, calm adults. I think they can see that he seems to be traumatized in some way. Yes, and certainly they can both relate to that, as they have recently been traumatized in some way. Yep. So they go down to the galley where he's kind of crouched in a corner, give him some water, and gently probe him for answers. And at first, Huey, I was really impressed. He's not trying to be aggressive. Again, The weird stuff is just under the surface. Mm -hmm. He does this weird thing of barging in and then hiding in a corner. But then when they question him, he's like, my name is this is what we were doing. Like he gives out the facts pretty quick. Yeah. He blames it all on, you know, I'm alone because of food poisoning. Yeah. And he's got the passports of the other five people that died. On the surface, this all seems on the up and up. Something tragic and traumatic did happen, but he's not being sinister about it. And there's a very good explanation for his attitude that he has been on the boat that has been taking on water for 10 days with dead bodies. And both Ray and John are like, yeah, we understand. Here, go have a lie down. Go sleep. So while on the surface, they're like supportive and understanding, John is skeptical. He locks him in this room. John finds the ship log in amongst the passports and the things that Huey has brought aboard. And... I would like to believe that John would have let the whole thing slide, bring Huey to the nearest port sort of the situation, drop him off there. If he hadn't gone through the ship's log 
because there were a bunch of drawings and hastily scrawled notes, things to the nature of paranoia. Like whoever was writing in this book, probably Huey, didn't seem right. Something seems just off about the whole situation. Yeah, and it progressively became more chaotic. Yeah. And I think delusional. Mm-hmm. And I like the word you like paranoia. So John is suspicious. I mean, he was suspicious the whole time. From the moment this guy walked on, yeah, he understands what Huey has been through or what he claims to have been through. And he is sympathetic, but he is also suspicious. Yeah. And then John makes a decision. Yes, he does. He decides that he's going to take the dinghy, row over to the derelict ship, which is called the Orpheus. And he's going to check it out. Yeah. Something that Huey was vehemently against them doing. There's always those moments in especially thriller movies where a decision is made and it changes the course of the movie. And of course, this is that moment when John decides to go over. Because once Huey finds out, it insults Huey's integrity, I guess, that John wanted to check out the boat. But also, a decision made at this point was that John didn't want to wake Huey up with the sound of the engine. So he didn't take his own sailboat over to the schooner. He took the dinghy instead. Of course, somebody was going to go back to that boat. There are five dead people on that boat. Somebody is going to go back to that boat Mm -hmm. at some point. If it wasn't John, it would have been the authorities back when they dropped Huey off. Somebody has to take care of the legal and... All sorts of ramifications of five dead people. That's a thing that needs to be taken care of. So through the course of the movie, we find out why Huey didn't want John going to the boat. That boat was disturbing weird. I'm not sure exactly what to think of that boat. It was a party boat. It was indeed a party boat. It was a mess. It was such a mess. It had been through something like bad weather. Like some of the sails seemed to be broken and hanging at odd angles. John is experienced enough to be able to see through binoculars at quite a distance before they even met Huey. Like, oh, there's a boat out there and it's in trouble. We should help them. Once we get onto the deck of the boat, it's just a mess. Then John goes down into the hold and it's a weird mess. Not only is it flooded, yeah. but there are... What are the things called it on the, the, like, the people on the front of the boat... Like the figurehead thing on the front of the boat. I always just call them figureheads. Figureheads? Okay, I feel like there's a specific word for it. Oh, there probably is. But the hold is full of those. Yep. And they tend, you know, tend to be naked women. Yeah. So they're all naked women. Over the course of going through the ship's log, John found a little newspaper clipping, something about free crews looking for four young women with fit bodies and... More or less loose morals. Yeah, a uh, broad mind. That's what it was. Yes. So the guy who owned the boat, who uh, is oh, dead crap. at the What's beginning his name? of the movie. Russell? Russell. Russell. Yeah. By the way, it's called a nautical figurehead. Nothing terribly interesting. Okay. Russell put out this ad in the newspaper. Huey was his assistant, and they brought on four young women, and they were just sailing around, taking pictures and videos of them in exotic places without any clothes on. And then Huey started getting really paranoid. Apparently him and Russell had different creative opinions about framing and photography in general. 
Mm-hmm. And eventually Huey snapped and he murdered all five of these people and stuffed their bodies in parts of the ship. Yeah, we don't get a really good sense of what exactly went down. But what you just said is like the basic outline and that's really all we know. Yeah. We did find a questionable number of dismembered female bodies. Yep. I don't know if John found all four or just bits that added up to a number. I do not know how many bodies he actually found, but no male body. Russell, we find later on in the movie, is in like the basement of the ship. Whatever that space is called between the outer hull and the lowest lowest level. Yeah. Is that the bilge? I I do not know. (laughs) But he's down there. But he's down there. Oh my gosh. Yeah. We spend a lot of time with John on the Orpheus because he gets left behind. But we very quickly discovered that the reason that the boat is so flooded is because the outer hull is rotting away. Yeah, the boat is in just really bad condition. It makes me think that the poor condition that was obvious to John at a distance wasn't from a storm, that it was from lack of care. Because John pays a visit to the very, very bottom, and he's able to stick a knife just through the outer hull. <laughs> yep. Like butter. Very distressing. Yes. But John is able to fix the boat in an afternoon. Yeah. He gets the pump going and pumps out all the water, most of the water, a serviceable amount of water. Enough that he can get the engine started. And he fixes the engine. Amazing what you can do when you're not... Crazy? Yeah. Delusional and paranoid and murderous? <laughs> Well, John has all of that time to fix the boat because once he realizes that everybody else on that boat is dead, he jumps back in the dinghy and starts rowing back to his boat. Yeah. Well, by that time, Billy Zane has woken up. Yes. And it's really funny, all the role reversals that we've done just now. You know, in the first time we saw the dinghy rolling in, it was Huey on the dinghy rowing furiously towards the boat. Now it is John doing so. And John is unsuccessful in getting back on his boat. He's so close, though. And saving Ray. Huey wakes up. Things are really weird. Ray sees that John is trying to get back to the boat, and he's so close. He jumps out of the dinghy, and he almost gets his hand on the railing to pull himself on, but he slips off, and he gets cut up by the rotor a little bit. I genuinely thought he might be gone in that moment. I'm like, oh, this is not a Sam Neill movie. (laughs) Thankfully, it's just a bit of a graze, and he's able to get back into the boat without getting eaten by something. Yeah, so he ends up in the dinghy and heads back to the schooner. Which leaves Ray alone on the boat with Huey. Ray is knocked out and, like, dangling painfully halfway off the boat. Yep. When she wakes up, I really appreciated this bit of acting. When she wakes up, It has obviously been, I don't know, at least an hour that she's been out and she has grown stiff and sore. Mm -hmm. And so she like can't move without groaning. She can barely pull herself up and turn herself over because she is so stiff from the fight that she had and then laying awkwardly over the edge of the boat for however long. I'm trying to think back over the hour and a half movie and just how the situation between Ray and Huey progresses. It all blurs together in hindsight. It does kind of all blur together. And I can tell you why I think. And this is something that, for me, builds tension. 
because they keep swinging wildly back and forth between an aggressive relationship and a happy relationship. Mm -hmm. Because that's what Huey is doing. He is swinging wildly back and forth between being angry with Ray and trying to hurt her to saying things like friends, like just wanting to be friends, to then sleeping with her. Like he's just all over the place and she is just trying to react to him at the same time that she is trying to take back control of the ship, that she is trying to radio the schooner and reach John. Like she's trying to quietly and surreptitiously do these things against him, but she never knows what his mood is going to be the next time she crosses paths with him in the boat. Nicole Kidman as Ray in this movie is pretty spectacular. She is always trying to think of the next move to take. She's always on her game. I don't think there are many instances in this movie where she's caught off guard. And if she is caught off guard, she doesn't panic. The one time that she was caught off guard that really kind of drove me nuts, she reacted well to it, is when she had finally gotten the shotgun loaded and she's looking for him. And he's just sitting on the steps. He's just sitting there, not really doing anything. And she comes around the corner and immediately like bumps into him. And so they start fighting over the gun. I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> Why weren't you being more careful about looking around the corner before you show that you have a gun walking around a corner? So that was the only time I felt like she just did dumb things. Mm. But you're right. Every other time she was always looking for weapons. She was looking for radios. She was looking for ways to subdue him. And looking for ways to keep him calm and to keep him placated. Up to and including having sex with him, which was super duper unfortunate and I hated it. Yeah. But from her point of view, I definitely see how that was a strategic move. And after that, that stayed on my mind for the rest of the movie. Like at some point after their reunion, she's going to have to tell John that she had sex with him, with the man that tried to kill him. Both. And how awkward and just another another kind of traumatizing that's going to be for their relationship that has already suffered a lot. So it was really unfortunate. But there are so many good things that Ray does once she's able to get John on the radio and he oh. can't talk to her, but she can talk to him. And so he uses yes and no clicks. She picks up on that so fast. I was so proud of her. Yeah. She goes into the engine room and she pulls the ignition key like out of the engine itself. And she gets so close, so close to getting rid of that key. And the dog fetches it. Yep. Yep, he does. Oh, my God. And the real kicker to the dog fetching the key out of the water is that Huey has been bonding with the dog yep. for a couple of hours. So now the dog, instead of returning the key to... Ray returns the key to Huey. Yep. And that's just a real kick in the pants. The dog. The dog turns on Ray so fast. It's uh, very unfortunate. And Huey repays that dog's loyalty by using him as a fake out. After the shotgun plan fails and after it's the failed uh, seduction. I mean, I, I, I don't know if the seduction was a total. I think. She well, placated him long enough that she was able to drug him. The seduction was a success in that they had sex. Yeah. So after sex, she makes him a drink and puts a whole bunch of sedative into it. And while the sedative is 
doing its thing, but before it really knocks him out, that's when he uses the dog as a a decoy, and the dog gets shot with a harpoon. Yeah, uh, a little, little spear gun. Spear gun, yeah. Like, she's behind a door, and the door is closed, and she's firing through it. And, and the doors are glorified plywood. Oh, yeah. They're really flimsy. So the bolts go straight through. When she saw that blood trickle out the door, I'm like, oh, no. That was the dog. That was the dog. Because I could have sworn I heard a little yelp. I think so. And she goes into the hallway, and he busts out of one of the... Little cubbies. Little cubby hole type things. And he's trying to strangle her. And I think that's when he passes out. He Yes, that's drugs. when he passes out from the drugs. Every scene in this movie between Ray and Huey is very tense. Appropriate for a thriller movie. Absolutely. Another thing that I'm really proud about, Ray, is that even when she can't get the engine started, she just immediately switches into sailing mode. Yeah, that was a big boat. I was very impressed that she was able to do it by herself. You can tell it wasn't easy for her. Like, I doubt she's ever really been the primary sailor that she has been the first mate. Mm -hmm. So to do that all by herself was a real feat. And she did it. Yep. She beautifully hogtied Huey. I mean, he got out of it, but... Well, he got out of it by taking a broken piece of metal or glass and he sawed his restraints off. And for the rest of the movie, his hands are covered in his own blood. So she finally, finally regains control of the boat. Like you said, the engine doesn't work. They're out of fuel because Huey is a terrible sailor. Yeah. He is a terrible sailor and he uses up all of the fuel. So she switches into sailing mode, gets the sails up, turns the boat around, heads back. She doesn't have a ton of direction, but she can navigate. Like, yeah, she heads back in the right direction. We get a beautiful montage, I suppose you would call it, of her sailing back and Nicole Kidman is looking very beautiful. She's very flushed and pink-cheeked. Her hair is perfectly sea salts, windswept, and it's some really beautiful cinematography. That trip back that she has, she is finally able to, after a day of terror, she is finally able to do what she needs to do to take care of her husband without fearing for her own life immediately. She's able to take back a modicum of control and... For a moment there, you get the sense of, oh, no, she's not going to find him. But then he lights the derelict ship on fire. He builds himself a little raft and gives her this gigantic beacon that she can follow. It was pretty great. That beacon, the whole ship going up in flames. It was pretty good. Of course, before Ray can pick up John, she has one more confrontation with Huey where she shoots him a few more times. And he will not die. no. So she ends up, after she shoots him a couple more times, she ends up inflating their own life raft, which is really nice. It's the tent kind. Mm -hmm. It's a really nice life raft. And dumping Huey on it and leaving him behind. I mean, good. Yeah. Get rid of him. She should have done that before. She should have done that earlier. But Asmolon didn't make a difference. So then we get John back on the boat. He's safe. They're together. Huey is off on a raft somewhere, and the next day they decide to sail back to the life raft. I guess Ray thought between her and John that they both could handle him. Yeah, so they find the life raft. It has been flipped upside down. Yep. So Ray shoots it with a couple of flares so that it burns up and Mm -hmm. sinks. I feel like for her, this is the final nail in the coffin where, okay, 
I am now sure that he is gone. Yep. So they sail away, and we get a little view of a bloody handprint and a rope. Yep. And so I knew at that moment, like, oh, this is not over. Yeah, it's the whole, the killer's not quite dead situation. Yeah, I thought that we had had our final confrontation already, and then I saw that, I'm like, oh, no, 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 we have one more confrontation to go. It's just when and where. And this final confrontation where Huey pops up, tries to strangle Ray, and John comes out of the cabin and fires a flare through Huey's head. Like, into his mouth? And then exploding it. Like, there's no coming back from that. He's proper dead now. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, this movie, like, reiterates, if you want to kill somebody, you do it through the head. Like, a lot. Yeah. People are hard to kill. This movie was a lot. It was, but it wasn't, like, a lot, a lot. It was was good. I was still able to enjoy it. It wasn't so tense that I didn't like it. Because I did. I did like it. I was listening to a podcast the other day, and they were discussing the difference between a horror movie and a thriller movie. Mm. And in a horror movie, agency is taken away from the characters. And in a thriller movie, the characters are free to exercise their agency. Okay. Which I think this movie does a good job of showing different characters that are exercising their agency. You don't really have a lot of situations where Ray's agency is taken away or John's agency is completely taken away. Sure, they get into situations where they're a little trapped, like when the mast fell in front of the door that John was trying to get through, but... It's not like they're teenagers getting stabbed by Michael Myers or Jason or something (laughs) like that. Yeah, there were very few times when people were tied up or locked in rooms. Most of the plot is on the boat with Huey and Ray. And Ray is more or less free to walk around the boat. She is wary of Huey, but he's not searching for her. He's not like out to hurt her. Pretty much really just wants to coexist, but he has no interest in going back to save John, who is in imminent danger. Mm -hmm. So that puts Huey and Ray at odds. But Ray is pretty much has the run of the place as needed. As long as Huey doesn't catch her doing something bad, she's fine. As controlling as John may be, (laughs) Huey takes that to the nth degree. Yeah, he really does. Yeah, the whole controlling thing. He wasn't like crazy controlling, but there were two times in particular that I remember when he gave her a command Mm -hmm. and basically said, just do what I tell you to. Just do what I tell you to. Don't do anything else. Just do what I tell you to. And it's not like his commands were unreasonable. It was just commanding. Do you want to hear some of the reception section? on this movie's Wikipedia page. Yes, I am curious how this went over in 1989. Okay, so according to Variety Magazine, in their write-up on this movie, they noted that Nicole Kidman is excellent throughout, giving the character of Ray real tenacity and energy, and the picture is handsomely produced and inventively directed. Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times wrote that the film generates genuine tension, Dessen Howe of the Washington Post praised the film's creators. Noyce's direction moves impressively from sensual tenderness between husband and wife to edge-of-the-seat horror with accomplished editing by Richard Francis Bruce and scoring by Graham Revel. 
he finds lurking dangers in quiet, peaceful waters. Now, that's a bunch of nice things. Uh, On the other hand, Karen James of the New York Times felt that the film was an unsettling hybrid of escapist suspense and the kind of pure trash that depends on dead babies and murdered dogs for effect. Wow. (laughs) And that dead calm becomes disturbing for all the wrong reasons. Uh, A number of critics faulted the film's ending as being over the top with the post's how writing, while it's afloat, dead calm is a majestic horror cruise. For much of the movie, you're enthralled. By the end, you're laughing. I was not laughing at the end. I genuinely thought she might die. Yeah. Like, yeah, I okay, I agree that it may be a little bit silly that he was able to climb back aboard the boat, but I genuinely thought he might kill her. The flare in the mouth, sure, that's probably a bit ridiculous. But at the end of a movie like this, you need something over-the-top cathartic. Right, a little bit of relief. Wikipedia goes on. The acting was generally considered excellent, with Zane being cited for injecting unforgettable humanity and evil puckishness into his role, and being subtly manic and evil. And while Rita Kempley of the Washington Post wrote, What's most fascinating about it is Ray's place in the pantheon of heroines, an Amazon for the 90s. The Times' James called Kidman's character tough but stupid. (laughs) I don't agree with James on that one. The film is listed on the New York Times' Top 1000 Movies list, derived from Peter M. Nichols' The New York Times' Guide to the Best 1000 Movies Ever Made. Well, 1000 Movies is a big pool, but I appreciate that this movie is in that pool. Apparently, this film inspired a 1993 Hindi-language film called Dar. Okay. I don't have much experience with Hindi-language film, so I can't speak to it. Yeah. Deadcom grossed... $2.4 $2.4 million at the box office in Australia. In the U.S., it grossed $7.8 million on a budget of about $10 million Australian. Okay. Not bad. Yeah. It more or less broke even. It's so hard in our day and age where if a movie doesn't make hundreds of millions, it's a flop. And it has to make it fast. Like opening weekend, it has to outperform everything else. Or it wasn't a successful movie. I feel like I'm just so skewed on what is a successful movie and what isn't. Let's move on to most favorite, least favorite. Okay. This is really hard for me to decide because the movie is full of tension. There are a few humorous moments like when the dog went and fetched the key. That was funny. But for the most part, you're supposed to feel unease and tension. Right. So it's really hard to define least favorite and most favorite my scene is both my least favorite and my most favorite okay basically for that reason is that it builds a lot of tension and it's really scary and i didn't enjoy it but it made its point extremely well it's when john is on the schooner and he has gotten trapped below decks and the water is rising and he's been manually doing the pump but it's not doing anything anymore and he is about to drown and he accidentally yanks this pipe down from the ceiling and the pipe leads to air yep so he starts sucking on the pipe and he stays that way for a few minutes until he comes up with another plan that was horrific just the idea of being trapped underwater and all you have is this disgusting pipe that he doesn't know for sure where it's getting its air from it could be 
from a place that's also getting flooded and he's going to start sucking water at any moment. He doesn't know what's in that pipe, but it's all he has. So he's using it and it's successful, but it's extremely tense and very drowny. So I didn't like it, but that's what the movie is. It's a tense movie. Yep. So it did its job very, very well. I think my favorite part of the movie, I was going to say when Ray gets John on the radio for the first time, but I think I like Ray going into sailing mode mm, even better. Mm-hmm. That was really good. Just the moment where she's able to just get her head on straight, think for a gosh darn second, and just start working towards a goal without having this absolute lunatic looming over her shoulder every single second. It was such a good feeling, and it felt like we were moving forward with it. Just really good moment. Very much enjoyed it. My least favorite part of this film was the seduction scene, because I don't like the plan. (laughs) I think it's shot very deliberately. We go very close in on Ray's face. Like, this is not a titillation type of thing. We're not, oh, look at Nicole Kidman's body and all this other stuff. It's She's visibly in pain. Yeah. This is not comfortable for her. She is allowing it to happen, and it's kind of ugly. Yeah. I think that it still counts as rape because while she did it willingly, she was coerced. Oh, yeah. I absolutely agree that this is not sex. This is rape. Yeah. I don't like it. I understand why it's there, and I understand the end goal of what she was able to accomplish because of it, but that doesn't make it any more enjoyable. I don't think, oh, yay, that's top-notch gamesmanship. Mm -hmm. It's a move born out of desperation with someone who is completely unhinged. Yes, and it was an incredibly risky move. He has proven himself to be unstable, so... The closer he is physically to you when he becomes unstable, the more dangerous it is. And he is all the way close to you. So that is an incredibly risky thing to do. And I don't think it was her original intention to actually go through with it. She was trying to distract him so that she could get the gun. And it just wasn't working. So she kind of had to go through with it. Yeah. Because her plan didn't really work. At the end of the day, does this movie get a recommend? I think so. For people who like thrillers. Right. I think if you are looking for a thriller, then this is a good option. Yeah. If you are coming at this movie like the advertisers wanted you to come at it as, oh, this was made by the people who did Mad Max and The Road Warrior. Uh, This is not Mad Max or The Road Warrior. This is not an action film. It is slow at times and very deliberate. And creeping. I would also recommend it to fans of Nicole Kidman. Oh, yes. She's phenomenal. She's in phenomenal this movie. in this movie. Absolutely. Her character is excellent. Her acting is excellent. So if you are a particular fan of Nicole Kidman, definitely. Yep. I would recommend this movie. I, I guess the same for Billy Zane. It was really hard to appreciate his acting because his acting was scary. Yeah. But like one of those reviewers pointed out that he did what he was supposed to do very well. It was just really scary. Yeah. If you thought Billy Zane was emotionally scary in Titanic, (laughs) Titanic Billy Zane is nothing compared to this guy. Yeah. 
Well, that about does it for this episode of the Mad Max Minute. We have more hiatus content coming your way on the first Tuesday of next month, and we hope you will join us when that rolls around. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham, produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our website is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for Mad Max Minute, and support the podcast by visiting Patreon.com slash MadMaxMin. Thank you for joining us for Mad Max Minute. We'll see you next time. Yeah.